Ephesians chapter 3 from verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Lord God, our Father, as we look into your word today, we pray that you would give us new hearts to receive these things, new eyes to see these things, new ears to hear them, Lord God, that we might be strengthened to live this life that you've called us to live. We thank you for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now in this, one of the things that we're talking about today, these days everybody wants to be closer to God, and there's a lot of ways to do it. You know how I go down and I torture myself by going to the Barnes & Noble Christian book section, right? I go in there, and there's thousands of books, and I don't know any of these people. And I've read a few books. But there's just so many of them, right, telling us about spirituality and telling us how to get close to God. And they've got so many methods and all these different things. They've got it all laid out for us, right? I find that 90% of it is false. But at the same time, none of it is bad. You understand how that can happen, right? You know, if people tell you, well, just make sure you have a prayer time every day, devotional, buy a good devotional. You know, none of those things are bad. But in the Bible, where is the book or the portion, or the scripture that said, if you want to feel close to God, make sure you buy a devotional and have a prayer time every day. In other words, it's not a bad method, but it's not the Bible's method exactly, right? We need to be careful about these man-made sacraments that we make. You know, In our theological tradition, especially for the last 500 years, uh, this church is, of course, the old church. Many of you are acutely aware of that, that we don't do things in the, in the new ways because what happens to the new ways in about 20, 30 years? They become the old ways and out they go, right? But the old ways, how many sacraments are there in the church? There are two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We will be celebrating the Lord's Supper here today. On Lord's Supper Sundays, in case you uh, didn't know, the sermons are a little shorter because we talk a little more about the Lord's Supper than some churches might have. Uh, uh, But the thing with this is, to draw close to God, you do the things that God said draw you close to him. And those things are very few and very potent and very powerful. When I talk to a person... Nobody at this church, of course. Uh, But if I talk to a person who's having a struggle with the Lord and they feel distant from God, we always have to, if they're serious, if they're not serious, you know, then I'm not going to get into it with them. We've got to be careful about getting into people's private stuff, you know. Just because I'm ordained and stuff doesn't mean I have the right to investigate the inner working of people's lives without a due invitation to do that kind of thing, Right? I mean, if you like to evangelize and you like to talk to people, you, you can't stand on the street corner yelling at people for Jesus. I mean, people have done it. John the Baptist, he liked to do that, right? So it's not a completely inauthentic method, but it tends to be through personal relationship and talking to somebody that has opened the door to their heart because they have seen you as being the kind of a person that they can talk to about these things. But at the same time, if we have these talks, usually 90% of that they don't feel close to God or are not close to God or do not hear from God and all these different things 
come down to that they're living their life or doing things in a way that is not pleasing to God. And so the distance from God is really a consequence of the way they're treating their relationship with God, right? There's this old language that I love from the confessions. It even says that with a real, believing, serious, praying, loving Christian, that at times the light of God's countenance, uses this language in our very confession, can be taken away from them for a time to bring them closer to God. You know, when David fell into his sin, he, he lost the pleasant countenance of God, and he had to go through an entire ordeal to get back there. There are all of these impediments we place in our relationship with God, and we have to struggle back from those things. Let me give you this analogy, which is a dangerous analogy, but all analogies are, because they're half true. An analogy is something that's one way that really is teaching you something else, right? Your relationship with God is not entirely different from your relationship with any other person. Is God a personal God? Or is he like the God of the dais out there in space somewhere looking at us through a telescope? He's a personal God. And so with any personal relationship, let me tell you this very clearly, personal relationships must be maintained or they start to fall apart. But also they can be corrupted and destroyed by the things that you choose to do in your heart and with your mouth, right? I've told you many times the things that destroy churches are not usually heresy. And it's not usually the world coming in with axes and clubs, although that type of thing does happen. Churches tend to be destroyed from within by the Christians that are a part of it. And so, of course, you know, lies, slander, gossip, gossip, whispers, backbiting, division, claims of power, trying to hold on to position and status. These are the things that tend to destroy churches. They're also the things that tend to destroy your relationship with God. You want a little more power in that relationship than you should have. Uh, for those of you that have been married, around here, I'm sure it's always been easy. But some of those folks out there have had some trouble from time to time. Uh, as you know, you know, back in the day, uh, in the churches, I did lots of marriage counseling. I have sat with hundreds of couples. Here's the thing about that. After a while, after a few years of that, after a few decades, you tend to see the train coming. You've seen this before, right? You know how this works. You know what this person's doing, and you know why this person's reacting, and vice versa. And then you get to the place of this. You know how this is going to turn out. They're going to make some decisions right now, and they're either going to end up in divorce court or married until they die. And most of it's going to have to do with the things that they claim are under their own power or their own rights within the context of this relationship. I have had to sit with a lot of guys and tell them, look, I understand you think you're right. I understand you're a man and you're trying to be a man. But unless you want to be living on a couch in a one-bedroom apartment while some other guy raises your kids, you better change. These things happen, right? The maintenance of your relationship with God is not entirely different than other relationships. If you love the person, you have to work with the person. Uh, in this, when you love someone, you study them through a lifetime, not just for initial things. What we tend to focus on on Christians, which is not necessarily wrong, is that initial moment of salvation. We love that glory moment, right? 
where somebody's been drinking and they've been smoking and they've been in all kinds of trouble and now they're with Jesus and their family's going to be great and they're going to cut down on smoking and drinking. But, uh, and and there will be a great football analogy in the sermon, I promise you. And everything's going to be great now. We love that, right? But what are they supposed to do for the next 20, 30, or 50 years? That relationship has to grow through time. It might start with sparks and fire, but like marriage, right, it usually starts with a lot of chemical intensity, frankly. Uh, when, you ask God, when you ask women, what will you look for in a husband? They look for, you know... Uh, faithful man, good provider, uh, you know, uh, good to his mama is always a good sign, right? When you ask a man, uh, you know, was she hot? <laughs> Their expectations in this relationship are rather low compared to the ladies. Our Christian ladies have been cultivated into fine Christian sentiments in regard to these things, and our men, frankly, usually have not. And then you get in a relationship with somebody and you're so well-suited to each other. You're so alike. You like the same thing. You know that thing opposites attract? Total lie. Opposites don't attract. Opposites just have not become so opposite as they will after 10 years of marriage, right? Uh, Sameness attracts, but people change. You know, I told you this one time about this lovely lady uh, at the other church. She had been married uh, to the same gentleman for 68 years. And once I asked her, you know, her name was Donna. I was, Donna, is he still the same man you married? And she said, he's not even the same man I was married to 10 years ago. (laughs) When you make that commitment, and you're going to be with this person through your entire life, you're also promising to grow together and not apart. I promise you the trajectory in marriage is to tend to grow apart through time. Even as you're experiencing all these things together, you're maturing. If I gave you all of the options when you got married when you were 20, now when you're 50 or 60, you would probably have very different judgments about these things, right? You would make different decisions. You've seen so much more. You are a different person. You're the same person in your center, in your soul, but you've grown a lot. And so have they through time. So you have changed. And so marriage is this constant process, not just of staying the same through time, but of growing together growing together while the tendency and the gravity is to grow apart. Well, as we can see in Scripture, did the men in the Bible, and I'm talking about the men of God that are named as guys God really liked, did they tend to do their biggest sins when they were very young or when they were very old? You know, it's a hard question, but think through them. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, The great men of the Bible that he calls out as these were my guys. Me and these guys were tight. They tended to do their great sins when they were older, not younger. Even after they had walked with the Lord for 40 and 50 years. Now here's the strange thing. That was not because they were not sanctified all through that time. It's because they grew and changed in their relationship with God and with other people. So this thing that we do with God, this walk that we call this life is one of which you are changing and your spiritual needs are changing and your relationship to this book is changing and you need to continue to grow closer to God day by day through life. God has a primary expectation on you that at the end of your life you're going to be a lot holier than you were at the beginning of it. We like youthful enthusiasm of faith, right? 
but it's almost nothing compared to the tried and true faith of people that have walked with the Lord for decades or an entire lifetime. It's a different thing. There's a reason why elders are elders and we don't ordain any youngers. Not because we don't appreciate their faith and the vibrance and the power of it. It's everybody as real as ours. The salvation is identical in itself. But having walked with the Lord a long time will change you. So in here in chapter 3, he's going through this. But then we get to chapter 5. Turn to chapter 5. The Apostle Paul does almost the same thing in every book that he writes. He starts out with these grand exaltations, doxologies, that boggle the mind with their spiritual and and uh, theological superiority. They dwarf us and they crush us. Then he tells us how bad we are. Then he tells us how good we are. Then he kind of gets to the end of things and says, well, here's what to do because of everything I told you. Now, this is chapter 5, so we're pretty far in here. He's in the telling you what to do part. Here's what he says as a consequence of everything you've read in chapters 1 through 4, which we didn't read, but we're going to go back to. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or covetousness, that's a person's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And when he says something like that, pay attention and think to yourself, somebody's going to try to deceive me with empty words. That's why he's warning us there. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For one time you were darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord, so walk as children of light. The, the means to growing close to God and to feeling that intimate closeness with him is just a, a combination of faith first, believing God, but also repentance from things that we used to do that separate us from God, and then newness of life and a walk of obedience with God. Just like with a person, when you know what pleases them, you all had parents, you had your fathers, you wanted to please them, you had your mothers, you wanted to please them. So you did the things that they wanted you to do, and you avoided the things that they didn't want you to do because you wanted that closeness with them. Also with God, the subjective feeling of distance from God that you have isn't him, it's almost entirely you. You are the one that feels different because you are the one that is being distant. But if you want to draw near to God, will he not embrace you? If you come to the Lord God in faith and repentance, will he not fully embrace you in all things? Now let's go back to Ephesians 1, where the Apostle Paul starts out this whole thing by just getting crazy. From verse 3, he's going to give us that doxology that opens us up to why we would want to live in these ways with God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How many blessings have you been given? Every spiritual blessing. He hasn't held anything back from you. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption 
as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise and glory of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. That's a lot of prepositions, by the way. That's a lot of pronouns, right? Who is doing all this and who's getting this whole job done? You notice it doesn't even talk about us as the, except for as the recipients of certain actions of God. It says him, he, his, right? He's doing it for you. He's doing it to you. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, past tense, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why does he do that? So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Take a look at the next chapter. In going through this, he also does this preclusory event. He wants to make sure that you understand before he tells you what to do and to be good people, which we all understand, right? You guys understand that moralism is liberalism, right? Jesus, when he was in conflict with people, almost every time they were right, in a way. We need to be careful about that. When he was dealing with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he said, you guys love the law, you obey the law, you even tithe your mint, dill, and your cumin. Have you ever thought of tithing 10% of your dill to the church. Don't do it. I don't want it. I don't got nothing to do with it. I can't help your dill. But he's saying, you guys are so exact in your legal obedience, but you've passed by the greater and weightier things of the law. In other words, you didn't even understand the law. Love and mercy and care and hope. Moralism, just thinking, we need to be more moral and they need to be more moral and everybody's got to start obeying the rules around here. That's not exactly God's program. Remember, he doesn't say, you guys were wrong, you shouldn't have been moral. He never tells them that. He's like, that's not the gospel. That's not the job of the church. The job of the church is a dispensary of grace and mercy to those who are seeking it. So here, before he goes on to tell us what to do right, first he says this, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. See, he said he, him, his... Now, you come up. When he talks about us, he's giving us our props, too. Those are all the things God did. Here's the things that we participate in and contribute to this situation. Following the course of the world and following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by very nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I hope you feel special. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now here is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Let's pay attention to it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God. Then he follows it up with this. Just in case you were missing what he's saying, it is not a result of good works so that no one can boast. We are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So he's not leaving out good works. But he wants you to know you're not saved by your good works. Your good works are really not that good. Every once in a while you might come through with a a really good, good work, right? Tainted by sin and credibility and the fact that other people are watching and the fact you hold it up to God and say, hey, look what I did for you. Your good works are good, but they're not good enough. God will never look upon you and measure you by how well you've done your good works and think to himself, wow, that one's a peach. You're saved by grace alone through faith. But now, because you are, all of your good works are from your love for God and for each other and not to earn his favor because you already have it. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. We were guilty. We got the grace of God. Now everything we do is from gratitude and thankfulness. You don't have to earn the grace of God. It's been given to you in Christ. So go forth and love God and your neighbor because you are completely uninhibited in this regard. You have no threat hanging over you. You have no punishment in the life to come. Now you are truly, for the first time in your life, completely free to truly love God and your neighbor. In this, when we talk about feeling distant from God, do the things plainly that God has told you to do, right? We have tricks that we do in our own mind. We all suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We all fight against what's good and noble and true, also even while we're fighting against evil. And one of the ways that we do it is when we want to get away with something that's an evil or a corruption or a twist on an old sin. We'll find a way to do it and to justify it in our own heart and mind, but part of us always knows we're doing it. And that will result in that distance from God that we do not want. And so faith and repentance and obedience, these are the ways that we draw near to God. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for this measure that you've given us, for this book that you've given us that we look into, and it's like a mirror upon our own souls. It tells us things, and it teaches us things, and it strengthens us, Lord God, but it also weakens us where we need to be weak. Because when we are weak, you're strong for us. We thank you for this great blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In regard to the Lord's Supper, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now the Lord's Supper is one of the sacraments and signs of the kingdom. It's a sign and seal of your covenant with God. It's also a means of grace. As you all know, you know, uh, my dad was a Pentecostal pastor, but I was kind of raised a Baptist. And so I always knew that it was a remembrance, which of course it is. It's a remembrance of what Christ did. But here's the thing. It's not only a remembrance. It's other things too. Is it possible that God set up a sign for us that he also take as an opportunity to give us a special grace, like prayer? and praise, and singing the songs, and hearing the word preached, or reading the Bible. These are all a means of grace. This is not less spiritual, the sign that God gave, that Jesus made himself for us to come into communion with him, is not less spiritual than you singing a song, for goodness sake. If anything, it might be more spiritual, right? So this is a spiritual event that God participates in with us. 
It's also one of the means that he's given to come close to God. We're going to grind this bread with our teeth. We're going to taste it. It's going to go down into our body and into our blood and into our bones. It's going to become our body, which is one of the reasons that Christ uses it as the analogy of salvation and his place in our lives. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So the contract is not being idolatrous in regard to this meal. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So is it a remembrance? Of course it's a remembrance. Is it a participation? Well, he says it's a participation, so I'm just going to take his word for it. Chapter 11, from verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. He's saying when they come together as a church and for the Lord's Supper, it's for the worse, not for the better. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper to eat. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in these things? I will not. For I received from the Lord Jesus what I also delivered to you. So people of God, we're going to come forward. We're going to receive the bread. We're going to receive the wine. And then when we're seated together, we will all participate in these things. Uh, together. But uh, this is a meal for the people of God. If you are not a believer, please do not take this because uh, it is not for you. Also, uh, it is for uh, baptized, professing believers in Christ. You have to remember, this isn't Jesus, and this isn't his blood. It's a physical outward representation of his body and blood that we participate in spiritually. So it's a manifestation of the visible church in history so it's for members of the visible church. I would never say that somebody that's not a member of the visible church can't be a Christian. Of course they can. That's why we baptize them. If you come and say you're a Christian, we will bring you into the church. But we are not God, and we cannot see the invisible. We only see the visible. So if you haven't been baptized and you're not a professing believer in Jesus Christ, this meal is not for you, though I would love for you to participate in it. Talk to the elders, talk to people here, uh, you know, that you're of some Christian church somewhere at some time and place. So people of God, come forward at, uh, at your leisure and, and receive the elements.
Because I don't want to be uh, confusing to anyone, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 27. It gives a warning here. And so the warning is what we call fencing the table or guarding. We guard it, it says here, really mainly for the safety and well-being of the unbeliever, to whom we do owe a debt of love just like to everyone else. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord... We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the others. So here, in these very words, the Apostle Paul says, judge yourself. Understand what you're doing. Recognize the body and blood of the Lord. You know, when young people want to start to participate in the Lord's Supper, the questions that they get are about this bread and this wine. And one of the questions we ask them is, what does this bread mean to you? And they say, it means the body of Jesus Christ broken for me. And what, is, what does this wine mean to you? It means the blood of Jesus Christ shed for me. Then we have a few special Presbyterian questions. Is it really his flesh? And they're like, no. Is it really his blood? No. But is it really a blessing that God has given you that it has a spiritual effect on you because God blesses it? Yes. So we're going to participate in this meal together. We do it in the order of the bread and the wine, following the example of Jesus. From verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. I know this isn't our usual bread. That's not something of spiritual significance. They just didn't have any Jewish matzah at the grocery stores this week. I also gave you bigger than usual. I expect you to be chomping on those for a good long while. Here's the thing. At the supper, it was a supper. It was a full meal. They sat around for hours and ate. You know? It was a fellowship meal. At this, you know, this is a symbolic representation of that. But you know, bigger crackers are not immoral just fine so then in the same way also 
He took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord God, thank you so much for coming together with your people in this way. Thank you so much for feeding our souls. Though we crush this bread between our teeth and we drink this juice, Lord God, it goes down into our bodies and becomes a part of our very living being. Even as you, Lord Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, still sustain us and feed us every day. There's not a single moment that goes by that we don't rely on you entirely for life and breath. We thank you for these blessings in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is, of course, you know, uh, most of it's from Scripture, and the rest is from the breastplate of St. Patrick, written in the 3rd century A.D., traditional blessing for Christians. This is also the blessing that we use here. So I'm going to 
give the blessing now. Now, a blessing is not a prayer, and especially, you know, uh, for those of you not used to this background, this is a wholly appropriate prayer posture. This is a wholly appropriate blessing posture. You're receiving. You're not praying. I can't really bless you, right? I just don't have the stuff for it. Pastors aren't made of magic and fairy dust and unicorns. But the Lord Jesus Christ can bless you. And so at this point, the pastor is just a stand-in for Jesus to proclaim to you a certainty and a promise. That if you have believed the things herein, especially the scripture and the preaching of the word, then everything promised there is for you. Please rise. May the Lord thy God bless thee and keep thee. May his face shine upon thee and give you peace. Amen. Amen.